Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah, and this is Cog Dog Radio. I'm here just going to answer a few questions that I got via email um, for you guys today. The first one is regarding barking, and this is actually something that came up, comes up a lot in my inbox, but it also came up at a seminar that I just taught last weekend. I I mentioned to the participants at the seminar that barking is a reflex and that being a reflex is not always under control um, on the part of the dog. And that blew a couple people's minds and somebody actually said, hey, can you do a podcast on that? So the whole podcast isn't going to be about that, but let's just talk about barking for a second. Um, Everybody that I know pretty much, including myself, finds constant barking pretty annoying. And so it's something that comes up in dog training circles all the time. Because anytime you have a pervasive dog behavior that all dogs do that happens to annoy people, it's on the table as far as what dog trainers are talking about Um because it's going to be a major point of issue with their clients. It's also a major point of issue in dog sports because a lot of sports don't allow barking, like obedience, and nobody really likes, you know, just excessive chronic barking from their dogs in a sport environment. Um, In the case of working with dogs that are kind of highly aroused, sometimes we look at barking as something that tells us that the dog is maybe not in an optimal arousal state for work as well. Um, And that's definitely dog dependent. So coming back to this idea of barking being a reflex, think about some other reflexes for a second. Um, Goosebumps is a a reflex. So if you're, that's literally just your hair kind of standing up on your arm and the back of your neck. Um, it's the same for dogs. It's called piloerection. And when the, that just means that the hair follicles stand up. So when your dog gets all haired up, he's experiencing that as a reflex. The barking that might come along with that reflex is reflexive in nature too. So understand that, um, We can train dogs to bark on cue and that bark that they always do when they're doing it on purpose is different from every other bark that you hear. So if you think about when you say, you know, Fluffy speak and Fluffy barks, think about the sound of that bark versus the sound that Fluffy emits when she sees the mailman um, or maybe when... The neighbor's dog is out barking. Um, I know my dog, Iggy, has a really serious vocal range and she has an alarm bark. She has a distress bark. Um, and she has what I kind of used to call a demand bark, but now I'm, I'm going to say it's more of a, a frustration bark. Um, and they're all distinctly different. And if you played me a recording, I would be able to tell you which one it is. She doesn't have a bark on cue um, for a variety of reasons, but if she did, 
I can imagine just how different that bark would sound from the other barks that are stemming from an emotional point for her. Um, so remember that barking is a reflex and it is usually not actually under the dog's conscious control. And once you understand that, you, for one thing, might have a little more sympathy for them when you're trying to ask them to control it. And the other is that you're going to get be closer to actually controlling it because you'll understand that asking them to put the barking under operant control is not uh, likely, but helping them to change the emotional state that's causing the barking is going to be your better bet. So in the case of alarm barking, the best possible thing you can do is just throw food. And alarm barking is the dog is literally barking at something that is alarming to them. It's usually due to startle, due to sudden environmental changes, um, or due to the dog seeing or hearing a trigger. So for my dogs, um, they will alarm bark when they hear the FedEx truck drive down the street. And yes, he could be going to the neighbor's house, <laughs> but if they hear the FedEx truck, everybody um, starts barking. And the reason is they have a conditioned emotional response to the sound of that truck because of how often there has been a person knocking on the door after they have heard that truck. So if I can help change that conditioned emotional response by throwing food every time I hear that truck, whether they're barking or not, I help everybody calm down about the truck. And now I have less barking. If you have barking in sport, um, let's take agility as an example because dogs are allowed to bark in agility. So, but if you don't want them barking, you're going to want to foster an emotional state that helps them not bark. And truthfully, depending on the dog, you may not be able to have both an optimal arousal state for agility and a quiet dog at the same time. Because a lot of dogs, just by their genetic makeup, just by who they are, are going to be barking if they're in an optimal state for work. More often than that, though, um, dogs that are barking in agility are doing so out of what I would call frustration. So the handler has miscued and the dog turns towards the handler and barks. Um, the dog expected reinforcement like at the end of the contact or the end of weave poles and they didn't get it because they're in a trial and so they turn towards the handler and bark. Um, or they're having a hard time waiting their turn and the dog running ahead of them is highly aroused and also barking maybe and then they're barking. And all of these dogs are barking reflexively. None of these dogs are barking on purpose. Um, and certainly some breeds are going to be more prone to it. Shelties, Aussies. I, since moving to the Pacific North Northwest, have found out that Pumis <laughs> also really like to bark. There are just a handful of dog breeds that are barky. And if you chose to get one of those, I pers my personal opinion is that you probably just want to deal with it. Um, let's talk about obedience, though, for a second. Because if your dog's barking in obedience, you're going to get majorly hit with points. So it is really worth your while to spend some good time being sure that silence is an understood part of fluency for your dog. So meaning that silence is a reinforceable 
chunk of behavior. I think a lot of dogs have no idea that silence could be a potentially paid um, piece of behavior for them. So in the same sense that if you've never trained dogs, you're never trained your dog a stillness behavior. I see a ton of dogs, we have all this great clicker training now, who don't understand um, how to perform a stillness behavior. So a sustained nose target, sustained eye contact, um, any kind of duration sustained behavior like that is the dog understanding that stillness can be clickable, that stillness can earn reinforcement. In the same sense, I would totally teach my barkers early on that silence can earn reinforcement. Um, and then try to layer silence in to your obedience picture. And I'd be going for that right off the bat. If you get a repetition where there's a vocalization, I would stop, reset. I would withhold reinforcement. Obviously, if you're doing that more times than you're reinforcing, you need to change something else in the picture so that you are getting more silent repetitions. But in general, I'd be layering silence into the picture from day one. Do not think you're going to get rid of barking later on. So like, let's say you're training your Sheltie to heal and he barks every few steps and you say, that's okay. You know, I'm working on drive and working on enthusiasm and I'll get rid of that barking later. Um, the answer is no, you won't. You actually won't because the barking is getting layered in as part of the fluency picture for that dog. And you're really going to be screwed, honestly, if you just let that happen early on. So in obedience training or any other work where the dog isn't allowed to bark, you've got to tell, you've got to communicate to them that silence is clickable, that silence is something you will pay for um, and inspire an emotional state that does not get barking. And again, depending on your dog, that could be a flatter emotional state than you want in the first place. Um, but that might be what you need to do for the time being while you work on telling the dog that silence is part of the picture and part of what you're looking for. And so that's really important to do. What I would have everybody think about when they're thinking about barking, especially if they're thinking of barking as a nuisance and something that they want stopped, is just don't forget that it's a reflex don't forget that most dogs are barking um, and they're not even aware that they're doing it. They're just doing it reflexively. They're not consciously thinking about doing it. So it's a really important piece. And barking doesn't necessarily mean that the dog is spiraling into an unhealthy state of arousal, but it could mean that. It depends on the dog. So paying attention to them and paying attention to what barking means for them is important. Um, so shoot me your barking questions if you want me to talk more about that. I am not probably not going to talk about a whole lot of pet dog training barking on that. But if you have performance dog training barking questions, uh, shoot them my way. So because I wrapped up the puppy series, I have had a lot of emails concerning fear periods. Um, and I'm going to just talk a little bit about how to tell the difference between a fear period and an actual fearful emotional response that you're going to want to do something about. Um, there aren't really hard and fast rules here. So know that a lot of this is coming from my anecdotal experience. 
um, and coming from talking to a couple of colleagues about it. If you are ever questioning a fearful response that your puppy is having, it is a good idea to consult with someone that you trust on it as fast as possible. So don't necessarily just take what I say here and run with it. If you're concerned about something, talk to somebody. Um, you can talk to a veterinary behaviorist. You can talk to, um, you know, a Karen Pryor Academy certified training partner is not a bad place to start. You can find them online or just ask people, you know, who do you know who can help me with something like this? And then obviously use your judgment um, and only hire somebody that is really committed to dog-friendly dog training. Um, what I'm going to look at is I'm going to say this. Okay, was my puppy normal last week and is now afraid of something suddenly? So has a fear developed in a very sudden onset type of way? And if the answer is yes, and there was no incident that I'm aware of, um, and my puppy was outgoing in a certain scenario and now is not... I'm going to say developmental fear period. Avoid the stimulus until the puppy appears to be out of the fear period. Plain and simple. Um, for instance, Felix cycled through several fear periods where he became afraid of men. And then he would go back to being his normal social self in a couple of weeks. I believe strongly had I tried to work, quote, work through that and had a bunch of guys feed her, feed him cookies or something, I would have run a very high risk of actually sensitizing him um, to that problem and then never getting rid of it. He's not afraid of men today. He's his normal self, social self. He kept cycling back to that. So I trusted that he would. Um... He also never developed a problem behavior, okay? So if it's sudden onset and the puppy's at a normal time to be having a fear period, I would ride it out. I would avoid the scary stimulus as long as you can. Um, however, let's say Felix became so afraid of men that he was barking, lunging, or um, acting aggressively towards men that weren't even approaching him. I would say... This is bigger than fear period material because we have a behavior change, okay? So, was there a behavior change when he was fearful? Yes, because he was avoiding men. So, that was the only behavior change. He went from seeking to avoiding. Now, if I have a puppy that goes from seeking to aggressing, I'm probably going to consider that a little more seriously. But here's what usually happens, guys. The puppies aren't seeking, they're neutral. So they go from neutral to aggression. Now I'm gonna say we might actually be developing a behavior change that we wanna start thinking about and being serious about because the puppy went from neutral on the stimulus to very bad, very negative on the stimulus. Um, that's different from seeking to avoiding. So that's those are polar opposites. Neutral and aggression are not polar opposites. Um, aggression is just a jump over to the side from neutral because the dog said, I don't care about that. And to be honest, when most people say their dog is neutral about something, I question it and kind of think, are you sure they're neutral or are they avoiding? But they're not running away and so you're not sure that they're avoiding. Remember that puppies are naturally curious. So if your puppy 
is not naturally curious um, and kind of never was, you're running a bigger risk of them developing aggression problems and, and things like that. So that just goes back to picking your puppy. You want that naturally curious puppy. Um, but in general, you know, when do we let it ride out and call it a fear period? And when do we dive into behavior modification is the, is the big question. And for me, the big question is, number one, does it seem as though this puppy has had a drastic flip? If yes, it's probably a fear period. Probably try to ride it out. Or is it more that this puppy went from being not naturally curious and kind of neutral on a stimulus to very bad, um, very opposed to the stimulus? Then I might be thinking about behavior modification. Um, the other kind of things to think about would be how easily can I avoid this trigger for a short period? So if your puppy's afraid of men like mine was, um, but you pretty much had like two guys in your life <laughs> overall um, that you don't live with, pretty easy to avoid that stimulus while the puppy recovers. And so I just did. Um, versus your puppy develops a fear of all other dogs and you live with other dogs and you live, let's say you live in an apartment complex and you have to take the puppy outside to go to the bathroom several times a day and there's going to be other dogs out every time you go out, you can't avoid that stimulus. Okay. So if I can't avoid the stimulus, I'm going to be trying to do some counter conditioning, whether it's a fear period or not, because the puppy has to come into contact with the stimulus. That's not ideal, but that's very much a reality for a lot of people. Um, Felix also went through a period where he was afraid of big trucks, big loud trucks. Um, I didn't, I lived out in the country. I could avoid busy streets for him while he went through this fear period and it was fine. If I lived in the city, I couldn't. So I'd be doing some counter conditioning while he was in the fear period because I would have to, because the stimulus would be there all the time. So it's a question of, did the puppy undergo a drastic flip? Or did the puppy just kind of um, increase in intensity on, on the same kind of level that the dog was already on? Um, those are good. That's going to be, the former is going to be fear period. The latter is going to be maybe not. Um, maybe more permanent behavior change. And then the other thing to consider is, can I avoid this stimulus and ride it out and see if it's a fear period or is it unavoidable to me? So if the stimulus is unavoidable, you're going to want to get a plan and start working on it now. So those are kind of the things to think about fear period versus kind of adult behavior change. The other thing, you guys, is once your puppies get older than, you know, a year-ish, if they haven't had any fear periods that you've noticed up until about a year, they're probably not developing new ones after a year. You've either got dogs that are cycling in and out of fear periods or you've got dogs that aren't. Um, different breeds have different tendencies towards fear periods. Different lines have different tendencies. Um, I feel like Border Collies live in a fear period until they're two years old. <laughs> That's how I feel about them because they're kind of a fearful breed. That's how they are. So I'm pretty much always assuming fear period until they're over two. Um, 
but that's also what I've what I've witnessed in my own dogs and if I got a different breed tomorrow I'd be talking to a lot of people who've raised a lot of them about what they what they observe as far as developmental fear periods go all right so moving right along um those are my thoughts on fear periods I had a, an email question regarding, it was a very specific question regarding car anxiety. And I think I'm going to try to answer it in such a way that we can understand a lot more about addressing anxiety problems than just car issues. So this person did what a lot of people do, which is um, she took her car or she took her dog through a car wash. <laughs> and um, I did that to Kelso and it, it really was scary for him. Um, you're not the only, you're not alone. I th- a couple of people at my seminar last week can actually mention that they did that. So you're really not alone and it's really common kind of error. I'm now traumatized. So I pretty much don't take my d- dogs through car washes at all. Um, and since my dogs are almost always with me, you can imagine what my car looks like. So, <laughs> um, generally speaking, if your dog has developed an anxiety, um, because of an event. So this dog was fine in the car. She took the dog through the car wash. Now the dog is really upset about the car. As soon as the car starts moving, the dog gets upset. You are going to have to embark on some kind of counter conditioning program. Um, your other thing that you, that seems obvious, but I think bears repeating is don't do it again. Don't take the dog through a car wash again. Don't even touch that. The dog doesn't need to ever go through a car wash ever. So don't even go there. So a couple of things I would do. Number one is she mentioned that the dog is okay as long as the car is parked. So that's great. You have a starting point. You have a starting point. Um, what I would be doing is working on building a positive association to the car for the dog while it is parked so that the dog is like begging you to let them in the car. So that's one thing I would be doing. And I would be using um, something really, really delicious. Sardines, goat cheese. I mean, we're talking whip out the the big guns. If your dog's favorite, favorite thing in the world is Frisbee, he has to hop in the car and then he can go play Frisbee, that kind of thing. So whatever the, whatever the dog really, really likes, don't show them the money up front either. Take them to the car, load them up, then produce the reinforcer. Don't ever lure them or bribe them with the reinforcer. Uh, that's a really important piece. So I'd be working on, you know, just some straight counter conditioning on that. And you're starting at a level that the dog does feel okay. And you've already identified that level. So that's really, really good. Um And I'd also be just gradually increasing it. So then maybe you leave the car on. So you turn the car on and now the dog's just getting used to the engine running. Um, Then maybe you pull down the driveway. Then maybe you go around the block. So that's that desensitization piece. So you're gradually building up um, the dog's ability to tolerate the car. And then here's, for me, a couple of pieces that I think people leave out that are important. Because these, you know, this is a basic counter conditioning desensitization protocol that I'm telling you to do. And you should just kind of look up what that is, design it on your own, or you can hire somebody to help you design it. The pieces that you may not find when you do that are these. Number one, if you have to take the dog in the car in the meantime, the dog should be in a separate area of the car. So you should basically have two different crates in the car. One of the crates is for counter conditioning, and that's going to be your long-term crate. 
That's going to be the dog's new crate in the car. And then anytime the dog is going to feel anxiety in the car, it'd be best to just never take the dog in the car during this entire program, but I know that's not realistic. So anytime the dog has to be in the car and they're not going to like it, then they go in a different crate in a different area of the car. And so the dog will start to understand, okay, this crate's safe, that crate's not safe. And eventually you just never put them in the not safe crate again once you've built up to the dog being able to be in the car. So that's, if you can't avoid a trigger, you need to somehow separate the trigger into two pieces, one being safe and one being non-safe. So it's the same with separation anxiety. If you have to leave your dog for longer than okay periods, they should be in a different part of the house than the house that you're trying to desensitize them to being left alone in. Um, That way to the dog, it's two totally different routines and one of them sucks and the other one's fine. Um, So that's one piece that you might not find um, in your searches on the internet. So that's one thing I would do. I would do that with any counter conditioning desensitization protocol. If you can't avoid the trigger, clearly make two different scenarios for the dog. One is in which you are working counter conditioning and desensitization. And under that umbrella, you've made a promise that you will not push the dog too far. And then the other is where you know you will be pushing the dog too far. And so you make it look totally different to them. So they recognize the two scenarios and eventually only the counter conditioning desensitization scenario exists. Okay, so that's that's kind of a real world counter conditioning piece for you guys. Um, and then the other part is that there has got to be a consent piece here, meaning you have to train the dog how to consent to being put in the car. Um, so I do a lot of work on this stuff. I do it in my husbandry stuff and now I do it everywhere. I teach the dog um, a yes or a start signal. So the dog is literally telling you, yes, put me in the car. And what you would do is you would just train a behavior. So you could literally train the dog to just tap a target. Um, it would be really helpful if it was something on the car, like the tire. So train the dog to scratch the tire with its front feet or something like that. Um, you'd clicker train that. So you just shape that behavior. And then while you're shaping the behavior, the dog gets a cookie for doing that every time. And you can just cue it by touching the tire or verbally cueing, scratch the tire or whatever. I would probably walk up and set my hand on the tire. And that would be kind of my cue for the dog to scratch the tire. Once the behavior was acquired, so meaning with decent reliability, you can walk up, place your hand on the tire and the dog will claw the tire. You stop giving the dog any food for scratching the tire. And this is very important that from that day forward, the dog does not get food for scratching the tire. Instead, the dog gets put in the car. So you walk up, you ask the dog to scratch the tire. He does. And then you put the dog in the car and then you give them their Kong full goat cheese or whatever it is that they get to have in the car. That's really amazing. Okay. So they still get that positive reinforcer, but after they get in the car. And now what you have is a dog that says, yes, put me in the car. So once the dog understands that the consequence of scratching the tire is being put in the car, now the dog understands, now the dog has control over it. And anytime the dog says, no, I'm not going to scratch the tire today, you go, okay, and you walk back in the house. You never ask them again. You don't nag them about it. You just go, all right, 
buddy, you don't have to get in the car today. So once the dog understands that scratching the tire gets them put in the car, the dog has the ability to consent to being put in the car. So those are the two things you got to have. You have to have separate scenarios for triggering events and, and events you're trying to counter conditioning. Sorry, counter condition. And then you also have to have a consent piece. Without those things, it's not going to work. Um, it's, it's, it may have mild success. It's not going to have the success that I would like it to have for you. So if you guys have questions on that stuff, shoot them over. Keep in mind that I'll answer questions on the air. Um, I don't, you know, just kind of give away behavior modification plans for free. (laughs) So if you send me an email, understand that I'm going to assume that you would like me to talk about this on the show. Um, if you want actual help with something, you should say that. You should say I'm interested in um, engaging in, you know, professional coaching relationship with you so that I understand that that's what you're looking for as opposed to, you know, me talking about stuff on CogDog Radio. So that's it for today. Those are going to be um, kind of my discussion points for today. I have one big discussion point that I'm going to hit next time, which is about um, how to help your students kind of manage their dogs better in class and how to really help your students um, understand how best to interact with their dogs when they're also trying to interact with you in class. So this is something that... um, an instructor wrote me about. And if you're an agility instructor and you are maybe struggling with handlers inadvertently punishing their dogs because they messed up and they kind of slump the shoulders and go, oh man, (laughs) or whatever, when the dog um, messes up, you're going to want to check back with me because I've got some really good tips for you instructors. So shoot me your email questions, cogdogradio at gmail.com. And thanks for listening.